One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. episode of the men's room at the Depot, Rory Jennings you know how it goes in the men's room we literally talk about absolutely anything from the good to the bad inspirational emotional uh, there isn't a subject Rory that we don't touch upon no absolutely I mean it's uh, it's very worthwhile isn't it and I do thoroughly enjoy these conversations I'm massively looking forward to this one now yeah this one should be a good one because we have a very very special guest in the building uh, Billy Monger is with us and I, I want to say just from the get-go and look I know you probably have been told this for many a year, but you are a true inspiration. Um, I'm, I can be emotional watching old episodes of EastEnders, if I'm honest with you. But watching um, Driven last night, and I thank you to our producer for sending it through to me. I mean, that got me going immediately. From the first 20 seconds, your mum, your dad, your, your sister, and what you've overcome and how you've overcome it. You know, often people get labeled as inspirational for doing the, the smallest of things, but what you've had to deal with in the last six, six, seven years, I just find incredible. Honestly, I find incredible. Normally when we get a guest on, I always feel like we can relate to them in some way. Like me and Ro- you know, whether someone going through mental health, depression, someone that's been in and out of jail, there's always that. Yeah, I can hang on to that. What you've been through, I, I can't, I, I can't relate to it. I, I, which is why I just find it so inspirational that you're here with us now, just talking, laughing, joking. It's incredible. For those of you probably thinking, Addy, you're blabbering on what, what happened. Um, obviously, you had a horrific crash um, in Donington, what, April 2017? Yeah, back in 2017. Yeah. Back in 2017, um, you lost both your legs. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, if you are watching this and you haven't seen Driven, um, it was a, a doc produced by BBC Free. It's on YouTube now. The fact you had that crash and 11 months later, you're racing an F3? I'm sorry. That's just ridiculous. Let's go back if we can. Let's start at the beginning and we'll get to that again. How did you get into um, to kart, into racing? Where did that love come from? Do you know, it came from my dad, really. I think it's kind of the thing for a lot of like kids to get into racing. It's quite a unique sport. You know, a lot of lads get into football, a lot of yeah. my mates, that was their thing. For me, when I was two years old my dad went out and brought me my first ever go-kart and he always tells me the story about you know he sort of rocked up to this guy's house and said oh yeah I'm buying a go-kart for my son 
son and you're meant to be like seven eight years old to drive this go-kart <laughs> yeah. so my dad was fairly keen to yeah. get me to have a go and I was with him in the front in like a baby seat in the front of the car and the guy like sort of like pushed the cart towards the van like to sort of put it in the back of the van so we could head off and said oh who's it for it's, it's for Billy my son he's in the front of the van the guy had a little double take at me and went he can't drive that it's for a seven eight year old and I was two years old so I think I first drove it when I was six um just round uh, a local go-kart track near me in sort of Croydon and it was basically a circle with a little chicane in it and my dad used to I was that slow when I started my dad used to run around the track in front of me and he's not exactly like Mo Farah or someone like that <laughs> so you know he'd do a couple laps be panting himself and I'd just be that sat there just following along and it just kind of spiraled from there really and did you love it did it immediately catch you was yeah. it a passion that just resonated straight away I, yeah I just loved doing it and it was something you know my dad was really passionate about it himself so I could you know it was like one of those things when you, you do something with your dad that you both enjoy and that it was like it kind of like I say when I started it was like we'd do it once a month yeah. so we'd go like one weekend a month we'd go on a Saturday morning down to Croydon sort of have a go around the track and then quite quickly that was like oh can we do another weekend this yeah. month can we do two and then eventually when I was sort of seven eight years old every single weekend we'd be putting the cart in the back of the camper van and traveling like somewhere around sort of mainly the south of England to start off with but eventually the whole of England just in our camper van it was like a family holiday every weekend sort of thing it's amazing mm. do, do, do you know what Billy do you mind sort of talking us through the day that that um obviously that accident happened yeah, yeah sure thing. like what 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 was happening what was the occasion what were we feeling going into that day because it's like mind-blowing to me this like it's so it's such a sad story but it's such a poignant story as well that people i think will really want to hear and will relate to oh yeah to be honest it was like any other race day there was nothing particularly special about it you know it's what i was i was used to you know i woke up on the sunday morning on the saturday we had the qualifying session at donington park and we had the first two races of the weekend i got a podium in the first race in the second race and a mechanical failure so it was sort of a mixed weekend but you know there's some promise there the first race getting a podium woke up on the sunday and was sort of ready to make amends for the mechanical failure the day before and just get out on the racetrack and do what i knew how to do best which was you know go out there and and race and get get stuck in um the only thing I would say in terms of the conditions that we had on that day, it was sort of like an overcast day. But as we were all sat on the grid before we go out to race, you know, the mechanics are doing their last checks, this, that and the other. Um, it started to rain. It started to drizzle in the end. We were all on slick tyres. And that as a driver is like the most tricky conditions you can face because it means that, you know, the cars are really slippery. It's easy to, you know, make a mistake, go off track. But those actually conditions that I loved because when I started at Croydon and going up to places like Tilbury as well which were the, the tracks I started off with me and my dad sometimes when it would do that it would rain and we were on slick tyres all the other kids would come and put wet tyres on my dad would just leave me out there and just go you know so you could get used to the finding the grip in those tricky conditions and I think genuinely that made me such a better driver you actually hear a lot of the F1 boys say the same sort of thing that their dads did that for them and it made a difference that when you put the wet tyres on all of a sudden you're like oh I've got loads of grip and you know it changed the mindset of yeah. you know rather than being apprehensive like you were used to it that fear's gone isn't yeah, it yeah it's like that fear's gone and you just feel more comfortable in those mixed conditions so as soon as it started to do that I was like right okay this is it like this is a good good for me ready for this uh first corner of the race i think i was lining up sixth on the grid uh the front two guys crashed into each other so i had, had to spin off to avoid them too so it was the worst start 
going. So again, at that point, it's just like, I've got nothing to lose now. I'm at the back of the grid. It's just like head looking forward, like rather than sort of, you know, thinking what's going on behind you as well. I had like one car behind me. I was like, right, okay, head down. Sort of coming through the traffic, overtaking people. I think literally the corner before my accident, I passed someone up the inside. So I was making good progress and then just came up the hill at Donington Park after um, the old hairpin. So you kind of obviously in a single seater in an F4 car, which is what I was in at the time, you're super low to the ground. I think that's something that sometimes it's hard to explain that perspective. Two cars were side by side in front of me. Next thing you know, they pull out the way last minute because someone had spun off because of the conditions and was on the racing line and I'm doing 125 mile an hour oh, there's a stationary car there with no time to to react so was, was somebody in the car yeah 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 so there was someone it was actually in fair it wasn't even stationary the car because it was on the hill was actually slightly rolling back towards me at like a couple mm. mile an hour so you know it basically hit that car and it everything all came to a halt we've seen impacts before like I'm, I'm a big F1 fan so you've seen impacts before I'm a big NASCAR fan that impact though watching that and obviously because there's a camera in your car seeing that head on like that mm. that's one of the worst of of i've ever seen like that that head on and it's funny when going watching the documentary obviously because i've known of and you're okay now and we're yeah. fine but the first thing that came to my mind was your mum it's weird that's the first thing that i'm thinking about when i'm seeing that it is is your mum it's not your dad because obviously look he's a racing driver it's your mum and how she feels and then your sister running to you as well. When you, you watch it back, you see me and Rory's reaction, we're both like that still. Yeah. When you watch it back, what's your feeling watching it back? Do you know what? It's really weird because it was pure coincidence that that weekend I had that onboard camera on the car because that basically gets moved around from car to car different weekends. So it was wow. the second race of the season. Mm. Obviously, I was one of the championship contenders. So they decided to just stick that camera on my car for that weekend. So on another weekend, that angle with that footage wouldn't have been available mm. and, you know, and it wouldn't have gone out live on TV and people wouldn't have seen firsthand what the accident looked like. You would, it would have probably been like a cut to from a wide angle. It would have changed the whole yeah. dynamic of how the that whole perception the action, of how bad it yeah, was yeah no one would have seen that personal perspective um so yeah it like i say it all, all came to a, a halt and um and and yeah my, obviously my family were with there quite quickly but mm. yeah it was a it was a weird can you remember moment. the moment can yeah. you can you remember uh, presumably up until you then can't remember yeah, so I was awake in the car whilst it happened for, and I was awake after the accident for about 45 minutes. So I was in the car oh while God. they were trying to figure out a way to get me out of the car. It, and it, were, you, were you having conversations with the people that were trying to get you out? With doctors. Were you compass? You were able to, to yeah. voice the way you were feeling and where you were hurting and what Yeah, was don't get on. me wrong. By about 40 minutes in, I'm on a lot of medication at that point. Yeah. I'm seeing all sorts. Yeah. Like I'm kind of there, but not there. I'm still conscious, obviously. But um, yeah, at the time, the adrenaline like you've got flowing through your body whilst you're doing that sort of, you know, whilst I'm driving, it all comes to a halt. And... Um, you mentioned obviously the car that I'd hit there was someone in it I could hear him screaming but I felt completely fine there was no pain the adrenaline was that run that high that I'm sort of sat there and I'm almost ready to sort of because you know racing drivers have big crashes yeah. I'm ready there to undo my belts jump out obviously glad I didn't try to do anything like that but you know that's generally how I felt at, at the initial impact so I, I tell the doctors to sort of, I'm fine, go and check him out. And I think quite quickly, you know, you can't see that much in a single seat because a lot of the cockpit covers sort of your lower body mm. and stuff like that. But I could see my knee was sort of up, sort of 
sort of close to my like face and like I was, my body position was a bit funny so I kind of thought there's been some sort of frontal impact here but you I couldn't tell you how bad it was was whether I'd broken an ankle whether I'd you know just like got away with it completely like I say there was no pain but it was more the doctors and the people medic sort of faces quite like in the first five ten minutes where they're looking kind of thinking oh gosh like how do we go around this they're obviously trying to put on a brave face and do and they're doing their job but you know you can kind of read people's body language and i was like okay maybe this is more serious the severity becomes apparent when you're looking at the faces of the people dealing with it and the volume of people that are dealing yeah. with it. how old was your sister at the time so i was 17 years old so bomb would have been 16 how how well she handles it's incredible obviously your dad runs to your mum she comes over to you mm-hmm. and she's trying to keep you calm yeah but she's obviously now now you've explained the positions of your legs and your, she's obviously seeing that yeah so she's, she's still a bit. trying to be calm with you like it's going to be okay it's going to be fine how she handled that's incredible yeah she was a rock star yeah. in, in that moment because that by the time she got to me it'd probably been i would have said 15 minutes after mm. i'd been stationary in the car so i think at, by the time point she came up to me they'd cut my fireproof overalls and everything away from me you know they'd put like foil blankets over me i think for my body heat yeah. and stuff like that they'd, and given me all this medication stuff so they'd done a lot already by the time she'd rocked up but yeah my mum and d- my dad was looking after my mum because she was obviously in the pit lane and no one was really knowing what was going on so at first they got told oh yeah we think he's broken his legs and mm. and that was kind of the most information they kind of got and but they couldn't see me so there was only one person allowed out on the track so that was bonnie so she came out she was basically yeah just by my side sort of saying bill was going to be all right you're going to be okay because i think after about 20 minutes i started to panic like sort of a little bit and was starting to think like am i not going to make it sort of thing like because of those reactions mm. and stuff and like, yeah I think I start, started to creep into my mind she was, she was really good at just keeping me sort of as chilled as possible being like you, you're going to be fine just keeping me chatting preoccupying me basically yeah uh, three days later you wake up you're, you're in a hospital bed um, a doctor comes in to see you and obviously gives you the news yeah that we've had to amputate both your legs yeah Go through that if you can for us. Yeah. I know this is probably going to be difficult, but... That's right, I've talked about it quite a lot. So. Yeah, no. Go through that moment when the doctor walks in and gives you that news. Yeah, obviously, so I, I came around three days after my accident, but I always say like the first sort of day, day and a half, because I was on so much medication, like I'm not... I'm in the room, but I'm not like I'm not really fully aware of the situation that's going on. But obviously, you have moments, even when you're you're not really aware, fully aware of when, what things are going on. The way you know you can look down at the bed sheet and see you know where we'd, your legs would normally be under the covers, like there's nothing there. Mm. So I think subconsciously, more than consciously, I kind of knew, okay, this is one I knew it was bad already from how long it took me to be in the car and yeah. and stuff like that and then I think sort of subconsciously I'd already kind of I was kind of aware that you know there was something bad had happened yeah so when the doctors kind of came in when I was more with it and kind of actually broke the news to me it wasn't weirdly it wasn't like this you know this huge shocking moment don't get me wrong it it still you know had some force behind it but I feel like there was part of me that had already understood that that was what had happened at 17 yeah how how's the mindset like that but how's it how's your mind that strong at 17 because people you could forgive someone for just okay i'm going into a room i'm shutting the door i'm never coming out again yeah like, this is it now my world's collapsed but at 17 you're already kind of strong in the mind that this is it 
this is it. Yeah, don't get me wrong. As much as I say I was aware of the situation that I was aware that, you know, that this had happened to me, there were still those moments, you know. I remember some having some nights, particularly at night, where I had a lot of... Um, blood transfusions when I was in hospital I think they gave me like 10 litres of blood like I needed just to keep me going whilst they were doing all those surgeries and there was that took my body and that didn't settle well so I remember having a lot of sleepless nights in the first sort of week of you know coming out of the induced coma that I was in and kind of basically being there sweating my body was rejecting what was going on and a lot of sleepless nights so a lot of time to be with your own thoughts Mm. so and there were definitely moments at night which were the toughest moments for me in that whole period where I didn't have my family sort of all around me you know keeping me occupied chatting to me this that and the other and the doctors there I was sort of you know getting I, I wasn't even able to sleep properly I had someone a nurse coming in every two hours at night to check me so you know just as I was maybe trying to get to sleep and, and get you know comfortable someone would come in wake me up you know go through that all that process all the tests they needed to do so those were the hard moments those were the moments where I thought you know you started to have those thoughts why me you know mm. this that and the other but then during the days my room was full of people that loved and cared about yeah. me and that genuinely made such a big difference to keeping they just kept me positive and I always remember the conversation I had with the doctor who did my surgeries early on after my accident I was super lucky that I went to a hospital called Queen's Medical Centre up in Nottingham Mm. which I got airlifted I actually got airlifted down the road from there but they didn't have a helipad on the top of the hospital so I got airlifted about five ten minutes away and then put into an ambulance and then driven the rest of the way so obviously there was a bit of faff going on on that side of things but I was out so it didn't make a difference to me as such but I remember speaking to the surgeon who came in and he was a military surgeon and he was out in Afghanistan in the height of all of that yeah, kicking off yeah. and he'd done 30 he was telling me how he'd done 30 amputations to soldiers in a day out in the desert in, in the day. middle of nowhere do you know what I mean so I couldn't have been in better hands I was lucky that his military duty he wasn't on and so he was doing his his civilian duties at the time he was serving at Queen Medical Centre when I came in so in terms of the luck on that side of things, I couldn't have asked for a better person to take care of me and look after me in that situation. And what one thing he did for me quite early on after my accident was switched the way I thought about things. You know, like you say, you can easily, you can not blame someone for being sat there going, why me? I won't be able to do this. I can't do that. Like think of all the negatives there are. But rather than doing that, he came in and he started to tell me, listen, this is going to be a seriously hard process to get back up and walk in, to get back, you know, a normal life. But it is possible. I've seen it firsthand in the military. And if you work hard, do your physio right, do this right, you'll still be able to walk. You'll still be able to have an independent life. This, that and the other so he just switched the way I was thinking about things rather than thinking of what I'd lost what I still had I think, I think you've been very generous to make this a compliment to the doctor of course I understand <laughs> I understand that he played his part yeah but this is actually demonstrating a resilience in you yeah like this isn't of course yeah maybe it awakened something that yeah. was already there but yeah the, doc- the doctor certainly played his part and is and is clearly a, a hero but this is a resilience within you because I don't think it would make a difference what a doctor said to me in that situation. I don't think I would display the same level of of commitment to recovery, uh, a glass half full approach. I think it's amazing. I genuinely think it's amazing. And not just a resilience to recover and and to walk again, but the resilience to think you're going to get in a car and drive again. You know what I mean? So so recovery is one thing, right? Recovery is one thing. But then telling the doctor, no, no, we're going to drive again. 
That's a whole different level of resilience. That can't have been like like is it has it has it developed? Like was it initial? Was it small obtainable goals each stage? Like at this stage when you're having this conversation yeah. with the doctor, the ambition at that point is independence and mobility yeah it? it's not driving it's, yeah it's it definitely wasn't i woke up had that conversation with the doctor and went yeah i'm going to be a racing driver again yeah it, it wasn't straight to there it was like you say a smaller yeah. step process but i think definitely underneath it all having that sporting background and having that passion and yeah. you know being when i was 10 years old and i won my first british championship in go-karts i knew at that point that i wanted to be a formula one world champion like that was my yeah, yeah. dream you know so I feel like that hasn't changed like I, I always say my accent changed me in a lot of ways but it didn't change like yeah, the, the, kid, the kid I the was dream. the person yeah, yeah, I was yeah. you know that was still mm. still there so it went from like I say at first it was just about you know being of 17 turned 18 in hospital so you're at that stage in life where you want your own independence you know you're starting to become a young adult you know you want to do things by yourself um so I remember little things of when I came out of hospital, our house, we live like on a bit of a farm. So it's like, you know, quite old and crooked and lots of steps up to rooms and stuff. That's a great gap. Like I've seen it. Yeah. It's, it's proper though, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's a, it's it's a, a love. No, I, I do is. understand what you're saying here. My wife's family live in a farmhouse. I can understand that an older farmhouse, an older architecture, isn't, isn't conducive yeah. to no it's to not ideal situation. Or anything. no, no, no. 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 So luckily when I was up in hospital for five weeks my dad would pop back on the weekends and he would him and his mates basically started demolishing bits in the house that what was my bedroom upstairs quite quickly got changed my bedroom was downstairs yeah. when I got back home my bathroom got converted so that I could use it like so oh, I, I was family, su- yeah I was super lucky that well, basically I came back to a home where you know the steps up to rooms were now ramps you know mm-hmm. when that allowed me to be independent myself because I always remember my mum as soon as we got back she went to go and push me in my chair I was like no I'm all right mm-hmm. like so I, because there was a ramp there I didn't have to run there and I pushed myself up the ramp and it was just like little things like that that then you know I was able to take a bit of control back in my life from an early stage yeah. so I wasn't having to rely on people don't get me wrong with this you st- I still had to go into doctor's appointments and prosthetic fittings like there, there w- I wasn't 100% independent but I could still do little things by myself mm. and it's, de- it's developmental isn't it like yeah. you're 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 on a journey to independence like you can see just small steps these incremental moments that ultimately you're going to regain full independence yeah that was the goal that yeah. was like I say that was one of the early goals was I want to not have mum and dad having to look after me for the rest of my life I didn't want to be a burden on someone else I wanted to be oh, in man. a situation where you know I could look after myself because I didn't want them having to you know that changes everyone's lives around me if I'm if I sort of admit defeat and go yeah. can you just look after me for I sorry I, I you probably know that I cover a sport boxing which very dangerous sport yeah and it's weird speaking to the families the dads want their kids to box the mums hate it like absolutely hate it and every time something goes wrong in the boxing world the dads blame themselves for it for wanting mm. their, to get their kid into boxing your dad must have blamed himself oh, 100% for that accident 100% yeah. he was 
probably the worst hit member of the family during that yeah. process. I remember when I was in a coma for the first three or four days and my mum said that basically whilst I was in that coma and whilst when they broke the news about me having to have my legs amputated that my dad sort of burst out into tears and said, can, you, can he have my legs? Like he was just going frantic and just talking mm. all this rubbish right. and didn't want to be in the room. He didn't want to, you know, he, he couldn't stomach being around me because he felt the guilt of getting me into this sport, which had resulted in that. me being a double amputee so again from the stories and from again after that he was definitely the worst hit my mum really stepped up in that moment and I, again she had a conversation with uh, with the doctor who, who looked after me and he said how you react to this situation and the reaction and what the emotions that Billy sees on your faces when you go in to see him will determine how he feels about yeah. this situation. Mm -hmm. So if every time one of my friends or some family members would come and see me, my mum would almost give them a pep talk before they came in the room, like, right, smiles, positivity, like, we don't want to you know, I don't yeah. want you going in there just crying your eyes out because then, you know, Bill's going to think, yeah, if they're thinking it's that bad, yeah. it is that bad. So, Have you explored those feelings with your dad? Have you had the conversation with yeah. your dad? Has your dad perhaps tried to apologise to you for bringing you into it? And you're just like, and maybe, you, well, what do you say? Yeah, he, um, he definitely at, at one stage or another has kind of said that, you know, about feel, feeling guilty and, and had went through that stage of like, apolog I think he did apologise to me once for getting me into the sport. And I was like, listen, you got me into the sport, hmm. but you didn't, you know, make me do it from the age of seven to the age of 17. Hmm. Like you didn't force me to do something for 10 years that I didn't want to do. Yeah. I said, at the end of the day, I love racing. I fell in love with it and I wanted to pursue this just as much as you if not more I was, I was doing it for me yeah. you got me into it but I wasn't doing this all for you mm. so yeah I took a bit of I guess ownership over the fact that I loved racing like as much as he loved me doing it I loved it myself and as well and clearly still do yeah, yeah, did, yeah. Did, it, did it not awaken any element of fear don't get me wrong there was definitely a moment after my accident when I first got back in a race car I think it was about 11 weeks after my accident I got my race license back um, and I went to Brands Hatch and since the age of like I say six seven years old I drove in a conventional Sorry, pause way there a second you got your you went back into a car 11 weeks after the accident yeah I still had so <laughs> <rapidly>. <laughs> what are you going to say like on? two years <laughs> what is going on no I, I um, it was about a month and a half after I got home from hospital someone offered me the chance to drive not like a, a full blown racing car but go to a brand's hatch yeah. and do like a sort of track day and yeah. it was a VW fun cup car mm. um is the, is the car modified? Do you have to have a slightly yeah. different year? Yeah, so this car, this car was, it was actually through a charity called Team Brit, and they basically they started up this charity to um, for when like veterans and people from the military have accidents. Okay. They it's a way of getting them back into a sort of normal life, so they can either learn how to be mechanics and engineers through this team, or they can have a go at driving the cars. And it's all hand controls and completely different. So I remember rocking up on that morning and kind of going, them showing me the steering wheel and going, okay, the throttles on the steering wheel here, brakes here. Is it and I'm sat there going yeah, this yeah. It does, this means nothing to me this is all almost feels like a different yeah. different sport doesn't it yeah almost. literally like I was starting from scratch again yeah. so I remember thinking alright well I'm here now so let's get out there and have a go in the first sort of five to ten laps I remember rather every time I've been in a race car up until you know I had the accident 
that was like my comfort zone. That's where I was comfortable. You know, if you're in, if you're a good footballer and you're out on the pitch, that's where you're in your element. You know, you're comfortable mm. with what's going on around you. It was the same for me in a race car. That was where you know I thrived. Every all the worries and stress that I might have from day to day life out the window. Just all you got to focus on is just doing your thing and enjoying it. And I remember those first five ten laps actually having that fear factor mm. all of a sudden there whilst driving a race car which I'd never never had before so it was like can I do this again I was generally questioning that the first 10 laps like this feels weird like breaking throttle with here you know once I got my head around the controls a bit and I felt like I wasn't going to press the brake instead of the throttle (laughs) and like random stuff like that then I was kind of like then I've started to ease a bit and then probably about yeah about half an hour into the day I was like yeah I'm back Uh, it just felt right A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What was it like, all the support you got from just, and that's one thing about sort of the British public, isn't it? Like the British public get behind you. No yeah. matter what, when, when you need help, they do. So not just the support from the general public, but support from Lewis Hamilton as well. What was that like? I mean, Lewis Hamilton was my Sir hero Lewis. growing Sir up. Lewis, Sir Lewis Hamilton. Sir Lewis. But yeah, he was my hero growing up. I'm, when I started, so I was born in 99. So when I started karting, it was sort of 2007, around that sort of era. Yeah. And that's when Lewis Hamilton just got thrown into an F1 seat and yeah, hit the yeah. ground running. So, you know, I'm looking at him going, right, he's British. He's smashing it in Formula One. That, that's what I want to be like. I want to be like Lewis Hamilton, you know, that that's where I want to get to. And all of a sudden I have this accident and then I've got, you know, people like him, you know, donating money to help support my rehabilitation and reaching out to me and spending how, how personal time about? with him. So the, what from the... How, um, did Lu- like, how did Lewis Hamilton end up getting in touch with you? How did it all... Well, I think the, the motorsport community is fairly tight-knit community because like I say, it's not like... It, football's a huge sport motorsport I guess is more it's a niche sport less yeah, people you, do you it through, don't you? F4 to F1 yeah to F2, so through, you always kind of I guess have tabs on what's going on in the other 
sort of motorsport categories and stuff like that. And the fact my accident was broad live cast on TV and then it ended up quite quickly on YouTube and like mm. it did the rounds on socials and on the news. I think quite quickly everyone in the motorsport community was aware of this kid's had a crash, he's become a double amputee. So I feel like at first it was just them purely being generous individuals and just yeah. looking out for someone like they they went on the same career trajectory as i did mm. and they were mm. they obviously re- related relatable, to yeah. related to it and it's thought, interesting to hear help. this though because i think sometimes unfairly in my opinion but i think sometimes lewis hamilton gets quite a bit of stick yeah it's this is a story i didn't know that he had a contribution to this yeah it's very he, he gave me a lot of time after my accident not only like from a financial point of view like this Just Forgiven page was set up to aid my rehabilitation and he donated to that but it was more than that from people like Lewis it was you know he invited me to go to the British Grand Prix two years on a, in a row with him donated his win to you yeah the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The win. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, I met dedicated him the win, really. dedicated the win at British Grand Prix to me and sort of I was there that whole weekend so he showed me around the car and the, the steering wheel and spent like you know good few hours of his day whilst he's at British Grand Prix with all the pressure on his shoulders trying to win spent that you know spending that time with me you know that's yeah that's like unheard of really so there's a really good piece on the doc actually which I I love probably one of my favourite pieces when you're in the F3 car yeah and you're showing him how it all works and he picks up the steering wheel and he's like well the throttle's a bit tight in this bit yeah but it just it felt really good just because it wasn't him looking down at you as, oh, I just want to help you because you're a, w- a double amputee. It's more like, this is just a racing driver to a racing driver conversation. Yeah. And that must feel good as well because that's what you want to be. That's who you are. Do you know what I mean? You have arguably the greatest racing driver just talking about the steering wheel and I'd like this and talking about different tracks. I thought that was yeah. really good. Yeah, that again, that was, that's who I am. I'm a racing yeah. driver. Like it's, I, all this other stuff that's come off the back of my accident, it took me a good few years to wrap my head around people like calling me inspiration and all of this stuff. Mm. It was in my head. I'm like, well, I'm just a teenager who loves racing that's doing racing. Okay, I've had a big accident and my injuries are visible, but like why are people now all of a sudden like you know saying that I'm all these things I didn't believe it myself mm-hmm. and I that and you're, I still you're, struggle you're with it that. you're wrong on that front <laughs> you're definitely but I that. still struggle on it but anyway that 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 sort of was in the background but yeah that moment in the documentary where I went up and to Silverstone and was able to at that point it'd been I think that was sort of February of 2018 so it'd mm-hmm. been about six seven months so over the winter me and the race team had sort of designed from scratch new control system that I was able to drive a single seater with Carlin Carlin were the team that I I raced for Mm. so they my best mate when I had my accident who I was racing against in F4 he invited me whilst I was sort of sat at home doing my rehabilitation and I had a bit of spare time on my hands he invited me to go up to their factory um so I got introduced to everyone and then eventually I had a go on their simulator and they just really basically converted like the gear levers for me to be a throttle and brake, put it in automatic mode, which obviously you would never race in and went just do a few laps. And it was like, I wasn't a million miles off the pace. I was mm-hmm. only a few seconds a lap off the pace. So they were like, oh, okay, interesting. And it was like, why don't you come back again with, with Jamie? We'll have a think about, you know, what we can kind of do with, with the controls and stuff. And you can do some more laps when he comes down next time. I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, I'm well up for that. And then quite quickly, I was telling them that, yeah, I want to be racing next year. I want to do F3 ideally. And I think it Did was- Did your mum ever just, not say no? 
Oh, I yeah. can't imagine oh, yeah. your mum. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't imagine your. I can't because obviously the doc doesn't really show that. But I can't imagine her just saying, "Yeah, you know, go ahead, oh, yeah. have a go, have a go." Did you remember saying no? Yeah. One, like I say, my mum was a rock star when it happened, and she took me to all my appointments, took time off of work. She was fortunate to be able to do that, and and basically got me from point A of being a double not knowing what things were going to look like, to getting me to a point where even when I started going to Carlin, I was still in a wheelchair, but but even when I started racing again in 2018, I was walking on prosthetics mm. quite quickly. And it takes, it's only taken me a few months, but I had like walking sticks. So again, that for me was difficult to get my head around because you know I'm, I've got sticks next to me. I'm like, mm. you know, this is what I expect to see people like when they're like 80 yeah, when they've yeah. got you know the walking stick and stuff, and I'm yeah. walking around like that. But she she was really good with that side of things, and she quite quickly realised what well, I was talking about racing even when we were in hospital. So as much as she was like, no, you're not doing that. She really, there was an inevitability to it. There was inevitability to it. And I think she knew that I, I at least wanted to try. That's one thing I said to her is that I don't want to be here in 30 years time, sort of when I'm 40 years old, kind of going, what if I could have raced again? Mm. You know, what if that was possible for me? So I think knowing that, you know, there was potentially going to be a lot of regrets on the table if I didn't give it a go. I think she was open to, yeah. she knew that that would probably be worse off for me in the long term, living with those regrets than just the for sort of having to put her own emotions to the side and kind of be like, right, let's just let yeah. Billy have a go. How's that all going now? How's the racing? The going? racing going. To be honest, at the minute, I've not been doing that much racing. Too Basically, famous now. Too famous. Too famous. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's unfortunately for me, again, it's, it's a. <laughs> I wish I wish that was the case. I wish that was the case. What can I do? I wish that was the case, but um, it actually annoyingly it was a COVID thing for me. So, but my accident happened in 2017. So 2018 I went back to racing, and 2019 I stepped up, stepped up and did F3 in Europe, and then 2020 was my plan was to do the official F3 championship, and then. F2, F1, you know, and I had the sponsorship sort of all kind of lined up for that. And then COVID hit, everything kind of gets put on a back burner. All the sort of series below F1 kind of were like not really happening. And I lost, yeah. lost, lost a lot of sponsorship fundamentally. So all the, you know, because it's a silly expensive sport, but, you know, I, I always said that before my accident, the level I was at F4, that was the level that between having like family sponsors and stuff like that, that was the level that as a family we could financially reach so the two years that i did f3 were years where realistically if i hadn't had my crash i don't know whether i'd been able to afford to be out on the grid mm. and then like i say covid came about that sort of effectively i lost just over half of my sponsorship just from companies not having the, the, the money to throw into stuff like that yeah. so it, it's a shame but you know it, it, a lot of people were in the same boat with me that you know a lot of drivers lost their lost their sponsors, lost their gigs and haven't been able to bounce back. So luckily I've been able to, I'm in a fortunate position where I've been able to move into other things and do the TV side of Formula One and still keep myself involved in the sport I'm so passionate about. But I still got that itch to be behind the wheel, but we're we're working on it. Talk to me about from time of accident to jumping back into the F3 cars. What was that, 11 months? Yeah. Getting on the podium, which is ridiculous. And then winning a race as well. Like how you've done that full circle and from the accident to winning a race, how long? 
What was the gap? From an accident to winning a race, I think was, I want to say maybe like uh, 18 months or something like that. Amazing. It's astonishing. Yeah. yeah. It's astonishing. Not just winning a race, but you, 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 the accident was in F4. Yeah. Then you've gone up to a faster car in F3. Yeah. You know, bends are tighter. Everything's a bit more crazier, isn't it? And then you're winning a race in F3. Yeah. It's, honestly, it's miraculous. The approach I had to it was after my accident, when I kind of, everything had kind of settled down and I was speaking into the governing body of the sport about, you know, being able to race again. Because at this, that time, there was a rule in place saying that disabled drivers couldn't compete in single-seaters. Mm which to be fair from working with the governing body they didn't really know why that rule was in place yeah so it was quite quite a, an easier process to overturn but when i had meetings with all these big bosses of this of motorsport they looked, they looked very posh and very yeah. tough as well don't i felt a little bit out of my depth yeah. <laughs> rocking yeah. up to an event in paris with yeah. all these big bosses in a room like sat around a table like this like having this, to fight my case for, for why i should be able to race again but I told them that I wanted to do F3 and they were all like, oh, well, maybe you should, you know, go back into F4. That's what you were racing when you had your accident. Maybe that's, you know, that would be the smart move. Or I was like, the way I approached it was like, I don't want my accident to affect my career. And if I didn't have my accident, my plan next year or this year would be to be an F3. So that's what I want to do. Mm. And they were like, okay. Yeah. And it, they managed, yeah, I managed to convince them that I was capable of doing it. How have you handled this new... I think fame's the wrong word because it's come off something so so bad. But throughout, considering how negative that was, how positive your life has become from that's a good thing. How, how have you handled that? People recognising you, yeah. and everything. It's, do you know what? Like I said, that was probably one of the trickiest parts about the whole situation for me. Like being an eighteen-year-old and just still doing A levels, still do, yeah, still doing my exams and all that that malarkey. Which yeah. I wasn't very good at school, but you know, we <laughs> skip over that bit. Um, I, I realised the doc skipped over that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And next yeah. week, even cut. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I, I was doing normal stuff as well and going back to racing which for me was normal and all of a sudden like you say all these motorsport fans and people were pulling me up in the street saying oh you're an inspiration this that and the other and I'm kind of there like thanks but didn't know really how to handle it or like how to take it um, so yeah it was it was really weird I, I started to yeah, at first I kind of wanted to push it all away because when I was actually driving that was like my peaceful moment mm. you know when obviously there was all the, the, the sort of you know noise around me getting back into a car got back into a car my first race got a podium then there was obviously more noise surrounding it and, and stuff like that and it don't get me wrong it was all positive you know I had very few negative comments around it yeah. so I was super lucky in that aspect True. you know because a lot of the time when there's noise on social media and all this stuff it's oh, more negative than positive you know it's what I mean normally you have to <laughs> <laughs> so you've never had a positive comment on social media but yeah so I, I can't knock it for I can't knock people for being negative towards me because that wasn't the case but even with all this positivity it was still I found it quite difficult still to deal with that kind of like was like in my head like I said I hadn't nothing's changed here I'm still a racing driver but all of a sudden people label me as an inspiration I felt pressure to live up to it all of a sudden like all these people were telling me how you know how amazing I am as a person and all this stuff and I'm like oh well, how how do I live up to that what do I have to change I felt like I had to change something well, about myself just who you are aren't they they're not asking you to do anything like no. it's, it's simply who you are but I think that's how I was thinking about it. Yeah. I, think I was thinking like, oh well, 
like I didn't think I was an inspiration before so maybe I need to do stuff slightly differently to live up to that yeah you can't come at the nightclub now can you can't yeah. fall out of the nightclub yeah. can you yeah. do you know what I mean what's life like on that you know on that front yeah. so you now have two prosthetic legs yep um, how do you find m- mobility how do you find sort of ducking and diving through London on the tube yeah are you are you comfortable are you confident I'm, I'm used to it now obviously like I say it's been sort of six years since my accident so I've kind of you know developed all the, the muscle groups and sort of da- trained and got myself into a physical co- position where I can handle all of those things don't get me wrong like stairs are my kryptonite it's handy that we put this studio upstairs in the park <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I was thinking come on boys come yeah. on stitch me up <laughs> they're my kryptonite because there's basically I've been doing stairs the same way since my accident there's no like way to make stairs look super like I wasn't empty when I'm walking down the street with jeans on you might think I've got like a little bit I walk a little bit funny but you couldn't maybe you couldn't tell Mm. at the same time well when I'm on steps I'm like I also have to put my hand up behind people like this is going to be a bit slow sorry if you're in a rush sort of thing when you're on the trains do you find people generally quite understanding and respectful yeah yeah yeah, really really so it's weird when I first again when I first had my accident the first couple of years afterwards I would always just from a um a ease of more than anything I would always wear shorts so like people highlights that you couldn't see yeah. that well like nowadays I'm more you know like I've you know figured out ways of you know making jeans work for me and I'll just wear normal conventional clothing so sometimes people you know you, you're walking a bit funny but people can't see any reason why so mm. I guess there's maybe sometimes a little bit of of that um, in like a bar or something like knock into you and uh, yeah all that sort of stuff but yeah it's changed slightly in that aspect but no people are always fine and are you, yeah. are you still living at home yeah still at home with mum dad sister at the minute yeah kind of getting to the stage where looking for my own spot but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah you do a lot for charity as well yeah don't you? um I can't swim, so the triathlons that you do, I'd have to pass on that. I could potentially do the cycling. Maybe about five k the jogging. Can't swim, can't That's swim. That's fundamental, mate. Come no, on, yeah. no. can't swim. <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, I know this isn't the place for these podcasts, wait, wait, but what is going swim? on? How far did you swim? Um, I so I've, the furthest I've ever swum in one hit is three point eight kilometers. So it took me about an Couldn't hour. And a half. Would you Couldn't just drown? Obviously, yeah. Look, you literally just go, you sink. You're, you're I'll just anchor. sink. I'll sink. <laughs> I think I could give it a go for 100 metres. Yeah, just really give it a go. This you ain't going to hang off the back of me when we're in the water. <laughs> Take us both down. He would watch me drown, this kid. He would, he would watch. I mean, you're on your own on that front. You should learn to swim, surely. Different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, Different so, podcast. so you, when you swim, yeah. do you swim in t- like it's all upper body? Pretty much, mm. yeah. It's pretty much upper body. So when I yeah I swim at the minute when I swim I swim breaststroke. Yeah. You basically use the muscles, the big muscles. I've still got my upper body. Um, so yeah, I don't really do. It, it looks a bit different as such. I don't really do a, a typical front crawl, but I can yeah, do it. Can do. And yeah. do, you know, and do you know what's a lot easier as well is oh, I found this straight away because swimming is like low impact. So it was one of the first cardio things I started doing after becoming a WMT mm. when I couldn't get up and walk and do any running or anything mm. like that. You go in the pool. I always used to, when I was a kid, my legs would always, you know, I'd always go, they'd always sink. Yeah. And yeah. they'd always, I wouldn't be able to float on my back, mate. I can float on my back in the pool for days, really? honestly. Yeah, if, we got, if, if my shit goes out. down and I'm on it, I'm floating there for a good couple of days. If <laughs> <laughs> you're using you as a life raft. <laughs> yeah. Probably would. Do, do you still harbour ambitions of 
doing F1. Is that still something in the back of your mind? Like, you know what? Yeah. Yeah. I still, you know, that's still, like the childhood dream's never going to change. Like that is my childhood dream, Formula One world champion. And it makes it harder in a lot of ways doing the stuff I do now where I'm on the other side of the camera. You're seeing it, yeah. And I'm watching all these boys, you know, new kids come into the sport. And I'm like, Mm. I need to still... I'm still thinking of ways of how can I get back in the seat? How can I raise some money? How can I go out there and show what I'm capable of? Because I still have that underlying sort of ambition that I need to be on that grid. Like that is where I'm meant to be. Especially if I've raced probably about five or six of the boys in F1 in karting. I was teammates with George Russell in karting when we were Jeez, 12 years old. So now he's out there with a Mercedes smashing yeah. it week in, week out. And I'm like, mate, I've, I've beaten you in a go kart before, like before, <laughs> like yeah. you know. Yeah. It's yeah. always one of yeah. yeah I'm yeah. like that. That could be that could have been me. Like, but again, I, I try not to. You know, I Focus just take positive. Yeah, yeah, take it. Take things for what they come. If that opportunity comes up, I'll be ready to take it up with both hands. Mm. But equally, it's I've kind of you know I've got a lot of other stuff going on as well so let's talk about the other stuff obviously you've got a podcast with Johnny Herbert yeah I, I'm not quite sure how you get a word in <laughs> <laughs> if I'm honest with you I mean I've had him on talk sport talking F1 and it's like just line it up Johnny and here he goes for four minutes <laughs> what's that like though? you must enjoy that though yeah it's, it's interesting for me Johnny my relationship with Johnny started after my accident so I didn't know him before obviously I knew him as being an F1 driver yeah. he was one of the first people to come and see me in the hospital in person because he had a big accident himself in racing so it's yeah it would be like a Premier League footballer coming to see one of you boys if you had something go on like that's what it felt like to me do you know what I mean that's what it felt like I was in hospital and next thing you know Johnny Herbert's at the end of my bed I'm like all right, this is a bit (laughs) this is a bit surreal but we'll go with yeah (laughs) I'm seeing things here but something's going on but yeah so he, he rocked up kind of went through what he went through like spoke to my mum dad sister you know and we stayed in touch ever since so uh, and I've seen him around the paddock at F1 races because he did his bits with Sky I was working with Channel 4 so we'd see each other in and around the paddock so that's where our relationship came from so I've got a lot of time for Johnny because you know coming down to see someone in hospital not not everyone did that and not everyone would have needed to do that but he felt the need to come and see me so I've got a lot of respect for him so the podcast came about I was thinking of doing something more I wanted to do more in the F1 space like my work with Channel 4 I really enjoy but you know I wanted to I found myself coming back from race weekends on a Monday night being sat in the pub with my mates so I play five side football so we'd always sort of sit around there and it would be a, almost like an F1 it would turn into like an F1 debrief after weekend Bill you've been away this weekend in Italy like what happened with Lewis why did this happen and I'm getting like thrown all these questions from my mates like m- mainly since Drive to Survive because before Drive to Survive when, I, when I raced they, yeah. didn't, they didn't care at that point yeah. they were like oh how'd you get on oh, I finished first second third oh great and that would be it mm-hmm. and then Drive to Survive came out and they all of a sudden they're all huge F1 fans now <laughs> which I always find a bit surreal but yeah they would pepper me with all these questions so I thought there's a lot of people out there that are new to sport don't know a lot about it that yeah. want to find out more about it like there's interest there so I thought maybe there's something that I can be doing in that space to just try and help people understand it a bit more and to give my perspective and then Johnny there was a the news where he him and Sky sort of parted ways so I thought I'll get on with Johnny he's a really good guy he's 
from a completely different era that I'm from. So he's raced against Schumacher's, Senna's, you know. I'm more up to date with the modern guys in Formula One. They say that's the era, by the way. Yeah, I know. That's the era. Well, that's, that's the big names yeah, of the sport, the isn't ones, it? Yeah. You know, so I am just thought, well, why not, you know, use the people that he's raced against, the experience he's got, and what I've got of, you know, the modern people in Formula One, put them both together, and let's just have a chat like you would in the pub about F1 after the weekends and try and answer some people's questions that might not know that much about the sport. Well done, honestly. Do you travel to all the circuits with F1? Not all of them, so I do... Was you in Miami? No, I wasn't. I was in Miami last year. Mm. Didn't wasn't there this year. I do about just over half of the races. They switch presenter lineup for yeah. race to race. But yeah, I do about just over half of them. It's not bad, is it? I mean, that would yeah. be like to to do the the circuit with F one would be like a box ticked. Because it's just it's some a, of the it's a lot, places on a the lot of travel, though. Yeah. I, I speak to, yeah, don't get me wrong. It's, it's always a very glamorous, it's, it's, it seems to always be good destinations. It does, doesn't it? it? Yeah, yeah. All yeah. Of it seems to be really always, good. always yeah. be very glamorous. Yeah, you're going to Monaco or Singapore. That, see, that was the one Rio. growing up, it was only Monaco that was glamorous. Monaco was But now all of a sudden, well. they're all glamorous, yeah. aren't they? But, but you boys know what it's like working in the stuff you work Mate, in. You met, I'm you a Chelsea fan. I've seen Chelsea play. In Sunderland, it, it is, <laughs> yeah, I've seen, I've seen shows. You know, I've had to change at Darlington Station for far too many times. Like, trust me, it isn't. It isn't. It's not all it, glitz it and glam, not Monaco. Yeah, but Monaco, yeah, the glitz and glam. But there's there's obviously parts to it where you know you're still sleeping. You're not in your your bed at night. You're yeah, in some fact, hotel course, room yeah. in the middle of 20 minutes from the circuit. You know all yeah. that. So there's there, there's that side of things to it. But yeah, I, I love love what I do. Being the, the age I'm at and getting to just be you know paid to travel around with a Formula One and go to all these cool countries and cool places, you know, I'm getting to in a lot of ways travel around the world for free at a young age. Like, there's a lot lot that yeah. can be said about that. Mm-hmm. Before we wrap, what's the name of the podcast again? Lift the lid. Lift the lid. Uh, well done, honestly. Well done. We could talk for hours. Yeah, we on say this it one. too often. Like quite often when we invite people on, you know, the word legend is banded around, isn't it? Inspiration is banded That's around. That's us. Yeah, that's that's that, that, that means a lot coming from a Chelsea fan. <laughs> yeah, but we do. You know, we talk maybe even maybe even some of our icons in football. You know, we use we use very yeah very generous and superlative Agreed. words to describe them, and it's not always accurate. But in this case, it is genuinely accurate. We have a legend and an inspiration on the show. Thank you so much for coming on, Billy. Really been great, Cheers, to lovely, boys. Thank you so Billy, much. I, I really hope that in a few years' time, we're looking back and you have got into the F1 car. Have you done any testing? Uh, I've done one day in an F1 car Wait, back in a 2000. Enjoy the commentary. If, have a lovely, lovely time from the commentary bar. It's the way I feel about Frank Lampard. Stay clear of management. Enjoy, <laughs> enjoy being in the, in the commentary box. Enjoy yeah, the but the thing is, Frank Lampard's gone to management and failed. We need to see him get in the F1 yeah. car and give you it a go. You haven't seen me fail yet. Give me a chance to Multiple fail. times. <laughs> multiple times. <laughs> But yeah, so you go on. So you've done testing. Yeah, I've done yeah. A, a test in a Formula One car back in two. It was a 2012 Formula One car. Yeah, so yeah, rocking them. So really enjoyed that. Want more of it though. What's it like? The feeling in it? Because I remember again. Sorry, I know I'm going to keep rattling on, <laughs> but I remember how different you said the F4 to the F3 car was. Yeah, it's a step that up. That different from F3 to F1. How different is it? It's just purely horsepower and downforce, <laughs> and yeah, your neck wants to fall off in a Formula One car. Jeez, uh, that like the- yeah, yeah, the G-forces are the thing that. You know, if I chucked one of my mates in the car, that would be the thing that would, you know, grab your attention the most. And the brakes, you know, you're in a road car, you look up ahead of you, you know how long you've got on the brakes to slow up to there. That's that like a quarter thing, of never a distance. Understood it. Have, you, have you seen Top Gun too? Please tell me you have Tom Cruise. Gun. How Love good Top is Gun. that? 
and made me want to get in a plane. <laughs> I think I'm just wired really, a bit differently. Yeah. differently. Yeah. And it keeps on talking about that G-force. Mm. And I've never understood what it... Explain it to me very quickly. Like, So one, one G is basically your body weight being pushed against the side of your head. So you've got to resist, say you weigh... Your body six, weight? Yeah, your body weight. So Against the, yeah. the side of your head? Yeah, so it's like the wow. equivalent of you weigh 60 kilos, 1G is like 60 kilos of force being pushed in your head that way. To make and an F1 car, you've got like 5G. Oh, so yeah. your necks is like 300 kilos sort of equivalent. You have to do the network. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you have to, generally, yeah. that's the It's crazy then because it. you guys must be so strong because most Formula 1 guys are small. No, they're strong, man. They must be... No, they're yeah, real, yeah. Real Compact. Yeah, yeah. compact. Yeah, yeah. Rich. Your core workouts must be incredible. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Right, Billy, he, um, wicked at a plank. Who? Wicked at a plank. All, all Formula One drivers. <laughs> plank, plank for days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do planks. I'm, I'm quite strong at planks as well. There you go. Formula One driver it's in the for, making. For, for, <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap because he's about to say something stupid. I can see, it's coming. I can see in your eyes about to say something stupid. Uh, Billy, honestly, fantastic to have yeah. you here, mate. Cheers, boys. Honestly, as Rory said, inspirational. Yeah. I know you hate hearing that, but it's true. Unfortunately, it is what it is, Bill. It is what it is. It is what it is. It is what it is. Um, look, we always try and give you the best episodes in this one, probably our best yet. We said that last week, so every week. We said Tom Skinner was the best. Who's on next? Who's, who's out doing me next week? It's just us now. It's just us now. It's just us. It's just us. The figures swim. go down. <laughs> But look, as always, thank you for tuning into the Men's Room Podcast. If you're watching this on YouTube, make sure you like, share, leave a comment. Me and Roy will jump into the comments as well and respond back to you. And make sure you share this on every single platform you can share it because a lot of people need to hear this story. Roy Jennings, Billy Monger, thank you very much for tuning into this one. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.